All right, first things first, from last week, the name of the louse, or lice, that attacked the French vineyard rootstock are called phylloxera, not phyllozera. My Greek was never good. And it's a vineyard, not a vineyard. I get to drinking. I'm an idiot. The only thing worse than an idiot is a drunken idiot. So, apologies. And last night we had a great time at the wine tasting, the history happening at Patty Malone's. Thanks to all who attended, we did. Uh, we drank 10 wines over two and a half hours, and then some of us drank some more after, and I'm still in a bit of a fog. Wine does that to me. When I'm drinking it, it makes me feel smarter, and when I got a hangover from it, I feel stupid. Well, I'm not really hungover. It's just besotted. I think that's the best adjective. Anyway, on with the show. If you ever want to study something that is more confusing than doing algebra using Roman numerals, then take up German history, especially German history before World War I. A colleague of mine back in graduate school at the University of Missouri, he specialized in pre-Reich German history. Once I asked him, don't you find it to be a clusterfuck of aristocracy? And he shrugged his shoulders and said, yes, but I know that I'll always be able to find a job in academics. That's true because there's not a lot of pre-Reich German historians in America. Anyway, or at least I don't think there are. Anyway, he did go on to become an expert on the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire and the creation of the Confederation of the Rhine, which were those German provinces in the Holy Roman Empire that had either sided with Napoleon or had been conquered by the French Empire after defeating the combined armies of the Holy Roman Emperor Francis II of Austria and Tsar Alexander I of Russia at Austerlitz in 1805. The 16 provinces of the Confederation under Napoleon's rule covered parts of what is today Austria, Germany, France, Liechtenstein, and Poland. Now, the Confederation of the Rhine only lasted until 1813. Napoleon was defeated the year before at the Battle of Leipzig, and when the Confederation collapsed, it was later replaced by the German Confederation, a loosely held-together band of 34 German duchies, baronies, and kingdoms first established by the Congress of Vienna in 1815. Another thing that came out of the agreement at the Congress of Vienna was that Napoleon should be exiled to St. Helena. And that is one of the few times in the history of the entire continent of Europe that everybody agreed on something. Even some of the French agreed that, yeah, Napoleon needed to go away. Then he went out there and he mysteriously died. Mm. Poison? I don't know. Anyway, the German Confederation had another five states added to it in 1820 for a total of 39 states, territories, whatever you want to call them, that had formerly been in the Holy Roman Empire, now made up the German Confederation in 1820. Now, to give you an idea of how convoluted this process was when it was being hammered out, between 1815 and 1820, here is a list of the countries slash states slash provinces slash baronies, duchies, etc., etc., that were involved. 
I'll go through these as fast as I can. Deep breath. Austria, Bohemia, Moravia, Silesia, Carinthia, Carniola. See, my German's as bad as my fucking Greek. Literal, Salzburg, Styria, Tyrol, Vorarlberg. All of the Austrian Empire, those were provinces. There was also Prussia, Saxony, Hanover. That's where the kings of England came from at the beginning of a century earlier. Anyway, Württemberg, Baden, the Electorate of Hesse, the Grand Duchy of Hesse, Hesse-Homburg, Holstein and Lorenburg of Denmark, Luxembourg, Mecklenburg, Schwerin, Brunswick, Nassau, Saxe-Weimar-Eisenach, Saxe-Gotha, Saxe-Coburg, Saxe-Meningen, Saxe-Hildberghausen, Mecklenburg-Strelitz, Holstein, Oldenburg, Anhalt Dassau, Anhalt Berberg, Anhalt Kothen, Schwarzburg, Sonderhaus, Schwarzburg, Rudolstadt, Hohenzollern, Heckingen, Hohenzollern, Sigmaringen, Lichtenschneid, Waldeck, Reuss the Elder, Reuss the Younger Line, Lip, Dipmold, Lübeck, Frankfurt, Bremen, Hamburg, and Bavaria. All of those countries finally came together in the Confederation of Germany in 1820. Although they were still separate countries, they were now a confederation. All right. And all of that happened in less than two decades. So my colleague back at MU, 30-some-odd years ago, anyway, he became a real expert on this field. An expert being, of course, someone who knows more and more about less and less. Now, during this clusterfuck of aristocracy known as the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire and the creation of the Confederation of the Rhine, which dissolved and morphed into the German Confederation anyway. I know it's confusing. Anyway, the Kingdom of Bavaria in 1810 held a wedding in the city of Munich, uniting the Crown Prince Ludwig of Bavaria with Princess Teresa of Saxe-Hildberghausen. Now, all of the citizens of Munich were invited to attend the festivities held on the fields in front of the city gates. Thereafter, these fields were named Therese Weisse, which means Teresa's Meadow, in honor of the newly wed crown princess of the Bavarians. And ever since, the locals have since abbreviated the name of the fields to simply the Weissen, or Der Weissen or Deweisen, I don't know. Like I said, my German sucks. Now, the celebration continued for seven days, concluding with horse races in the presence of the royal family, which marked the close of the grand festival for the whole of Bavaria. The kingdom of Bavaria might have been celebrating because it was happy days for them. They had decided just four years earlier to side with Napoleon's French Empire against their longtime rivals, to the south, the Austrians. And for their assistance, Bavaria, which had been a duchy prior to that, was named a kingdom by Napoleon and was given lands from other states, most notably parts of the provinces of Baden, Salzburg, and Tyrol, all of which had opposed the French emperor during his invasion of the Holy Roman Empire. Subsequently, the size of Bavaria nearly doubled, and even to this day, Bavaria is still the largest province in Germany. The wedding of Crown Prince Ludwig, or Ludwig and Crown Prince Theresa was held the week of October 12th in 1810. 
The next year, 1811, an anniversary celebration was held to celebrate the royal marriage along with more horse races and an agricultural exposition. And the same thing was done the year after that in 1812. Now, the Napoleonic War was raging through the German states in 1813, and Bavaria's participation was much appreciated by the French emperor, so they didn't have a celebration that year. But Munich brought the party back in 1814, and with the exception of a year here and there, due to extenuating circumstances beyond the Bavarians' control, really, the celebration has been held annually, and we call it Oktoberfest. I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began with this one time we were eating a salad, this is history, the story of alcohol. I know, I know, you're saying, God damn it, it was a long introduction. Yeah, it was, it was a long introduction. It took me a while to get to where I wanted to go. Tonight, in honor of Oktoberfest, I've got something from our good friends at Santa Fe Brewing. It's their Oktoberfest, and it is delicious. We've got it on draft right now, down at the pub, and you need to see this beer. This beer is wonderful. It's delicious, and though it's not necessary to drink it from a Oktoberfest mug or a big glass boot that's larger than your head while wearing lederhosen, you'll find this lager's unbridled festivity difficult to resist. This classic German Marzen style showcases the smooth maltiness of Munich malt compounded with the delicious notes of Bavarian hops, giving this a clean finish a beer with just the right flavor for the end of the summer. From our good friends and Patreon patrons, Santa Fe Brewing Company, the brewers of beer with the spirit of the Southwest. Prost, amigos. Mm, that's good. Das gut. Anyway, the 184th Oktoberfest started in Munich this past Sunday, and it'll go on until... Tuesday, October 3rd. Now, while the fair itself is 207 years old, as I mentioned, they had to skip it a few times, mostly because, uh, well, most of the years is because the Germans tried to conquer the rest of Europe and the world, but uh, they didn't have time for drinking during that point, 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 of, point of their history. Anyway, but it's probably the biggest single location festival in all of the world, really. Even with advanced hotel reservations down this year, because there are some concerns over terrorism in Europe, it's still estimated that over the 18 days of the festival, more than 7 million people will come through the gates, which is pretty remarkable when you consider that Munich itself is only a population of about a million and a half. Now, in comparison, one of our biggest parties here in the United States, Mardi Gras in New Orleans, it brings in approximately 1.2 million people during the week before Fat Tuesday. And while Rio de Janeiro Carnival in Brazil attracts just over 2 million. 
The Oktoberfest grounds are massive as well. They cover a space of 420,000 square meters, or about 261 square miles. There are 34 beer tents with seating for about 100,000 people, a little more. Over the course of the two weeks or so of the celebration, 6.9 million liters of beer will be consumed, along with 95,000 liters of wine, 42,000 liters of sparkling wine, no figures on schnapps, I couldn't find any anyway. They'll have tons of traditional Bavarian foods, sausages, chickens, pretzels, smoked fish. With all of this drinking and eating, there are 1,800 toilet facilities. The event employs over 12,000 people, of which 1,600 are waiters and waitresses who are selling you those liters of beer at a tune of about 11 euros a piece. Now, the festival brings in about a billion, that's with a B, one billion euros to the Munich economy every year. So, I guess it's a pretty big deal for Germany, but it's really absolutely a big deal for the economy of Bavaria. But what Oktoberfest was and what it is now are two different things. As I stated before, it started out as a celebration of the wedding of a prince and princess in Germany. It was most likely just a celebration around the horse races, kind of like the Kentucky Derby, Deutschland style, I would say. The festival was first called Teresa Weisse, or Teresa's Meadow, as I had said earlier, and even today the people of Bavaria call the celebration De Weissen. They don't call it Oktoberfest. Now, besides the horse races and an agricultural exposition, Carnival booths with games of skill and chance were added in 1816, giving the festival more of a fun-for-the-whole-family feel, but that wouldn't have been my family, you see, because at that time, there wasn't any beer sold at Deweissen. Deweissen, whatever. The whole beer thing associated with Oktoberfest didn't begin until 1818, with the introduction of food and beer stands. Before that... Beer and other alcoholic beverages, as well as food, could only be purchased from vendors just outside of the gates of the grounds. And it dawned on the organizers of the festival that there was a shitload of money just walking off that they could be putting in their coffers. Talking makes me thirsty. Mm. Damn, it's good. So it dawned on the organizers of the festival that this money was walking away that they could be taking in themselves. And so, beginning in that year, 1818, food and beverage vendors were licensed to sell product on the fairgrounds. Now, besides the addition of food and drink in 1818, 1818, two 18s, swings and carousels were erected on the ground as amusements, giving the atmosphere an even more carnival-like feel. Record crowds showed up in 1818, and guess what? The city of Munich decided it'd take over management of the festival the next year. And that was also the same time they moved the dates up. People always say, well, why do they celebrate Oktoberfest in September? Well, here you go. The, in 1819, the Munich uh, city fathers decided to move the dates up 
into the last two weeks of September with the festival ending on or around the first weekend in October in order to take advantage of warmer evening weather, hoping to draw more people from the city of Munich out to the fair at night. In 1835, on the 25th wedding anniversary of now King Ludwig and Queen Teresa, yeah, his dad died, so he got to be king, the first parade to honor the royals was held, another tradition which continues to this day with one big difference. The parade and the festival stopped honoring King Ludwig in 1844. Why? Well, that year he imposed a tax on beer. This isn't going over very popular with beer vendors and beer consumers, right? And that led to riots in Bavaria and Munich. Social unrest followed after that. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago the German uh, social upheaval in 1848 and 1849. Anyway, the social unrest, it led to the German revolutions of 48, and that's when Ludwig decided, fuck this shit, I'm done with these people. And he abdicated his throne to his son. He wasn't forced off, he just said, fuck it, I don't want any more to do with it. He abdicated his throne to Maximilian, his son. And... Ludwig lived a very nice rest 20 years at his palace in Munich. Two years later, in 1850, the Statue of Bavaria, a 60-foot-tall bronze monument depicting an Amazon woman with a laurel wreath in her left hand and a scabbarded sword gripped in her right and a lion at her side, was erected on the Theresa Weisse as a gift from Ludwig to the people of Bavaria, even though he was no longer king. See, he had already ordered it. It was done. He'd paid for it. And he thought, oh, fuck it. I'll just go ahead and put it up. But he felt as if it exemplified the beauty and the strength of the Bavarian people. And that statue has stood watch over Oktoberfest ever since. Over the years, the celebration has been canceled on a few occasions, usually because of war or economic reasons. But, but in 1854, the city of Munich canceled the event because of a cholera outbreak. In 1873, another cholera outbreak caused a cancellation again, and between those two cancellations, there were two others cancellations because of war. In 1866, Bavaria sided with Austria in the Austro-Prussian War, and then four years later, Bavaria sided with Prussia in the Franco-Prussian War. Like I said, the history of Germany is harder than doing algebra with Roman numerals. It's, yeah, it's tough. It's all over the place. Now, the next big development came in 1881 when bratwurst was introduced in the food booths. (laughs) I know, how can you have Oktoberfest without brats and beer? Now, the year before that, electricity began to power the lights on the grounds, and for the first time, it extended the hours of the party well into the night. In 1913, the Brausel, I don't know, B-R-A with the two umlauts over it, U-R-O-S-L, Brausel. I tried looking it up on my Google Translate. It doesn't recognize it as a word. So, anyway, the beer tents. In 1913, the first beer tent was introduced. Now, this particular brothel 
was approximately 65,000 square yards and held approximately 12,000 people. And as I said earlier, today there are more than 34 of these tents on the festival ground where approximately 10,000 people can sit at picnic tables and drink their liter mugs of copper-colored Oktoberfest brew. The common Munich Oktoberfest beer served today contains only about 45 or 5% alcohol by volume. It's copper in color, it has a mild hop profile, and is typically labeled as Bavarian Marzen beer. Of course, being a lager, it's bottom fermented yeast at 45 to 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Now there's a confusion, a bit of confusion, as to the origin of this style. It most likely, I think we can safely say, came before refrigeration and before the first Oktoberfest possibly. Beers brewed during the winter were kept in storage over the spring and summer months, usually in caves or in cellars, so they would keep until fall. Now, some were also brewed with a higher level of alcohol to help with the preservation. The label Marzen translates literally to March, the month of, and these beers were originally brewed during the early months of spring. They were also they were meant to be consumed over the summer months, especially late in the summer, when because of the heat, brewing was impossible due to the higher temperatures and a risk of bacterial spoilage. Now, it may not come as a surprise if you're familiar with the German beer purity law, Leinheitsgebot, but Oktoberfest beers have to follow that and even more restrictions or they can't be served at the festival in Munich. A major qualifying factor for a brewery to be able to serve at the Munich celebration is that it has to be within the city limits of the city. Only the following breweries are licensed to supply Oktoberfest with beer. That's Augustiner Brau, Hacker Porschor Brau, Hackerpschorbrau, I think. Lohenbrau, I can say that one. Polliner, Spatenbrau, Stadtlich Hofbrau München. I should have went and saw Helmut Schneider, uh, Steiner over at the Das Steinhaus, and he could have told me how to say these words. Anyway, no beers from breweries outside of Munich are allowed to be poured at Oktoberfest, and even some of the smaller breweries in Munich are excluded. In fact, the European Union has a regulation stating only certain breweries in Munich, which tend to be these larger facilities previously named, are allowed to call their beers Oktoberfest. And of course, luckily, this rule does not apply to American craft brewers like our friends at Santa Fe. Prost, amigos. I just, I'm down to one drink. I got, well, I got more beer in the can, okay. Interestingly enough, the beer of Oktoberfest in Munich was not always this copper-colored malty beverage that has come to be the mark of today's brews. Early on in Oktoberfest history, the beer served was more than likely a darker lager, more along the lines of the Munich Dunkels that we know today. The use of crystal and Munich malts and reserved 
Noble Hop Regiment and a moderately carbonated water created a clean drinking malt forward lager that was sweet but not cloying. Now, the story goes, in 1872, one of the approved Oktoberfest breweries ran out of their dark lager while trying to quench the thirst of attendees during an exceptionally hot September. So, instead of accepting defeat and very, very likely losing their coveted contract with Munich, the brewery brought in a stronger, about 8% ABV, Vienna-style lager. Now, even with a slightly higher price, this alternative was a hit. And Bach Strength, Bach Strength lagers excuse me, increased in popularity up until the time of World War I. Now, after the First World War, the standard strength of Oktoberfest beer fluctuated between 4 and 9%, with this color evolving into this reddish-brown, copper, Marzen-like hue that we're familiar with today. Now, the Oktoberfest style has more or less settled into a session-strength beer of about 5% ABV, with a malt-forward malt forward lager profile, my tongue's getting drunk, with a beautiful, beautiful copper color, just like this nice beer I have here from Santa Fe. Mm. And you also got to realize that they serve these Oktoberfest beers at Oktoberfest in these liter-sized mugs, and that's the equivalent of like three 12-ounce cans or bottles of beer. So it's for like 11 euro for a liter of beer. That's not that high for Europe. I was reading some stuff online where they were bitching about the price being so high. But that's really not that high. You, I know, I know, you go to Ireland and a, and a pint is 4 euro, which a pint is actually just a half liter. That's what that's what the pints measure out to in uh, in Ireland and in England as well. And so you know, four and four euros, eight it would be eight. But loggers are always more expensive than ales. They they always have been, they always will be. They take more work. They take longer to ferment out. And when you're buying any type of alcohol, especially alcohols that are aged, you're gonna pay more for them because why? You're paying for inventory space. That's what you're paying for. So there it is. You don't like the high prices of your single malts and your aged beers and your aged wines, you know, drink cheap vodka. Anyway, what can I tell you? Good things cost money. Anyway, in 1914, due to a series of disastrous alliances, Germany found itself in the midst of World War I. And for five years, Oktoberfest was canceled. Now, coming out of the war, the festivities were scaled down. In 1919, 20, and 21, Oktoberfest was renamed the Autumn Festival. And also coming out of the Great War, Germany's economy was devastated. And due to hyperinflation in 1923 and 24, Oktoberfest was canceled because no one, and I literally mean no one had any money. 
When economic disasters hit a country, one of two things usually happens. The people will pull together to work towards lifting the economy up, with the government assisting with programs that benefit the economy as a whole. This is much what the United States did in the 1930s under FDR. The other thing that can happen, a nationalistic, exclusionary xenophobia takes over with a dictatorial leadership feeding the fears of the populace. And that happened in France in the 1790s, Russia in 1917, and Germany in the 1920s. With Germany bankrupted in June of 1923, France occupied the Ruhr industrial region as a result of Germany being unable to meet its reparation payments. This led to an economic chaos, the resignation of the government, and an attempt by the German Communist Party to stage a revolution. Now, the reaction to these events was an upsurge of nationalism against the communist, and stepped in the National Socialist Workers' Party, whose membership grew sharply to about 20,000 that one year. By November of 1923, Adolf Hitler had taken control of the National Socialist and decided that at the time was right for an attempt to seize power. He hoped that the army would mutiny against the Berlin government and join his revolt. 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 I need a drink. That's good. On the night of the 8th of November, the Nazis used a patriotic rally in a Munich beer hall to launch an attempted push. I think that's how you say it. You know, let's look it up. How do you say that? Google Translate, help me out. All right. German. All right. All right. And enter P-U-T-S-C-H. Coup. That's what it means, coup. Okay. So we go. And now, here's, what's this? How's it? How do you pronounce that? Damn it. Putsch. Putsch. Is that right? Putsch, putsch, putsch. Fuck, fuck it. Anyway, the beer hall push, push, attempt failed almost at once when the local military commanders refused to support it. On the morning of the 9th of November, the Nazis staged a march of about 2,000 supporters through Munich. The army and the constabulary of the city opened fire and 16 Nazis were killed. Hitler and a number of his associates were arrested and they were tried for treason in March of 1924. But they were given very lenient prison sentences. The government was worried that strict sentences, especially of executions, would rally the public behind the Nazi cause. And while Hitler was in prison, he wrote his semi-autobiographical political manifesto we know as Mein Kampf, or My Struggle. Hitler was released from prison the next December, and the next spring, he convinced the Bavarian authorities to lift the ban on the National Socialist Party. 
Hitler promised that the Nazis would not use force to take over the government, but would try to influence the government through traditional political movements. Hitler appealed to those who were out of work. They blamed the other European countries, and especially the Jews, for the economic hardships that the Germans were in. The Nazi party continued to grow through the 1920s, and in 1932, Nazi candidates took over the German parliament. And in 1933, Adolf Hitler was appointed chancellor on January 30th. The die had been cast, and after that point, I doubt there was probably any going back. The flag of Bavaria is, you've seen it if you've seen any type of Oktoberfest photographs. It is a field of sky blue and white diamonds alternating in a pattern across the banner. And this flag flew over every Oktoberfest beginning in 1810. Then the Nazis took over the government. In September of 1933, the blue and white banner of Bavaria was replaced by the red field, the white circle, and the black swastika. And it flew over the Oktoberfest fairgrounds for the next six festivals. The Nazis looked upon traditional cultural celebrations as a recruiting tool. Now, as long as those in charge of these ceremonies and celebrations supported the Nazi agenda, everything was fine. If you didn't support it, well, look out. The irony of this in in regards to Oktoberfest is that Adolf Hitler neither drank alcohol nor ate meat of any kind. None. He just, he didn't. He didn't eat meat. He didn't drink alcohol. Whether he had personally attended any Oktoberfest is not documented. Germany invaded Poland in September of 1939, and that launched World War II. Oktoberfest, of course, was canceled over the next seven years. Now, when the war was over, a devastated German people held a small festival in Munich in September of 1946 and 47, similar to those they had held after World War I ended. Germany had been divided into sectors, administered by the victors, with the Soviet Union taking control of the eastern third of the country. In 1949, Germany was divided with the creation of the communist country of the GDR, that is the German Democratic Republic, or East Germany. Now, you know what's funny? A lot of you are listening. I, I know some of you that are my audience, but I take this for granted because I was alive when the when the the wall went the wall came down the wall in Berlin in 1989. Of course, I was how old was I? It was 27, 27, 28. I was living in Dallas, Texas, and I remember very clearly I was getting ready to go out and play play softball that night, and it came across the news that the the Berlin Wall had fallen down. Now, a lot of you out there that are listening right now, you, I know some of you are in your early 20s, you don't remember a time when there was the Iron Curtain. But I'm telling you, 
I think it's coming back. Just today I was watching the news. Russia is doing military exercises along its borders unlike any they have ever done before. And the last time they did anything that was similar to these was when they invaded Ukraine. The Cold War never ended. It just morphed into something else. And this was one of those defining times in the history of the world when Churchill came to Fulton, Missouri and gave his speech about an iron curtain descending from Europe from the Adriatic to the Baltic Sea. And this is when it happened. It started, I should say. The Western Allies, the United States, that is, and France and Great Britain, they believed that the best way to rebuild their controlled sectors of Germany and to gain an ally in the, in the works would be to support them economically. Now, under the Marshall Plan following the war, the, econ- the, 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 economy, the economy of the Federal Republic of Germany, that is West Germany, it boomed. One of the greatest rebounds of an economy ever in the history of the planet. And most of that was due to the influx of U.S. military money into the German economy. Saw thousands of Army and Air Force personnel, along with hundreds of installations, pop up all across West Germany. And guess what? Those servicemen, they discovered Oktoberfest. The blue and white flag of Bavaria returned after the war, and the greatest growth to the popularity of Oktoberfest came after the U.S. occupation. Even today, there are still more than 36 U.S. military installations in Germany, and almost all of them are just a few hours away, either by highway or train from Munich. And the Americans, they went back home and they talked about Oktoberfest. And guess what happened in the next few decades? International air flight became cheap and available to everyone, not just to the luxury class. And Americans started to come over to attend Oktoberfest. During this time, in 1950, a new tradition began with the opening of the festival. On the Saturday of the opening, at noon, a 12-gun salute is fired, and then the Lord Mayor of Munich, Munich screams out, Abzapfist! I think that's how you say it. If it's not, I don't give a shit. Meaning, it is tapped in the Bavarian dialect, and he then pours a beer from the first tapped keg and promptly serves the first one to the minister-president of the state of Bavaria. Prost! Slancha! Slancha's Irish, I know. Other traditions also came over in the next decade. The horse races ended. (laughs) And the carnival atmosphere expanded greatly with the introduction of roller coasters and other rides like we have at our carnivals here. Nothing like drinking beer and getting onto the tilt-a-whirl, is there? I don't know if this ever happened to anybody else, but one time I was a kid in Hannibal. 
and they used to have the carnival came in around the 4th of July every year, and I was on the Tilt-A-Whirl, and there were some other people on the cars. Oops, almost. There were some people, and they'd been drinking. I was probably 11 or 12 years old. I was with Jeff Bridges, not the dude. Matter of fact, I watched the other night, I watched the Coen Brothers uh, uh, version of True Grit. Jeff Bridges played Rooster Cogburn. God damn, he's good. But that's not this Jeff Bridges that I'm talking about. We were at the carnival, and there were some other people in there who had been drinking, and they puked, and their puke flew right all over me and Jeff. God damn, fucking assholes. If you're going to drink, drink. Don't get on fucking carnival rides. All right, that's just my opinion. Also around this time, the traditional con costumes of Lederhosen for the men and the Drindle dress for women became widespread and adopted as the official dress of Oktoberfest. The traditional German dress, the Drindel, it reveals a lot of cleavage. And if you're at Oktoberfest, I am told, and you want to know if a Fraulein is available or not, you check the ribbon that she wears about her waist. If the bow of the ribbon is on her left side, that means she's willing to give you a chance. But if the bow is on the right, steer clear. Because somewhere near is her boyfriend or husband. Your public service announcement, so you don't get beat up in Germany. And just so you know, not all of Germany celebrates Oktoberfest. As a matter of fact, there are more Oktoberfest celebrations here in the United States than there are in Germany. As a matter of fact, there's only two other major Oktoberfests in Germany besides Munich. Hamburg, and Berlin. And they're not nearly as big as Munich's. But, you know, like Cinco de Mayo, which is really only celebrated in the Mexican state of Puebla, Oktoberfest is really only celebrated in Munich. And like the Mexicans, with Cinco de Mayo, the Germans have set up some half-assed Oktoberfest around the country to prey upon the factually confused American tourist. Oh, it's German. It's German, so they must do it everywhere. No, they don't. But if you're not in, Bavaria, if you're not in Bavaria, you're not in the right place. Hamburg, Frankfurt, Berlin, do yourself a favor. Go to the real McCoy. Take the train to Munich. I've never been there, but it's on it's on my drinking bucket list. It it is. I gotta go. In America, there are hundreds of Oktoberfest celebrations, from the cities as big as Milwaukee to towns as small as New Braunfels, Texas, and everything in between. Even here in Jefferson City, this year we're celebrating our 17th old Munichburg Oktoberfest. That's uh, the week of September, weekend of September 29th and 30th. They're going to have uh, dachshund races. I don't know if, I hope they have some Oktoberfest beer. If not, I know where you can get a good pint of Santa Fe Oktoberfest. You might see me at the Old Munich Berg, but you'll definitely find me at the Irish Pub enjoying a pint of Santa Fe Oktoberfest that weekend. And... It's always good. So, folks, cheers, prost, happy Oktoberfest. 
History Episode 41 was written and produced by me, Alan Tatman, and the Technical Director of History is Brian McGeorge. The Marketing Director is Tim I'm Not the Bomber McVeigh. Don't have any news on my new project yet to share with you, but I think I will by next week, so keep listening. History is a Wild Irish production, all rights reserved. And this week's phrase for you podcast listeners, that's this Wednesday through Saturday, is Plost Amigos. Tell your server at Patty Moan's Irish Pub that phrase and get a special on any 20-ounce draft beer, including Santa Fe Brewing's Oktoberfest or a regular mixed drink. Big thank you to all of our Patreon patrons for helping us to keep the lights on once more. And thanks to everyone who shared the post on Facebook or retweeted. And a special thanks to everyone who shared the podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. The theme music for history is from Ben Sound. Do you have need for music for a project? Then contact Ben Sound and see what they might have for you. That is bensound.com. And if you like this week's program, please let us know on Facebook, Twitter, or give us a glowing iTunes review if you haven't yet. Any show ideas or comments, or you just want to tell me to fuck off, send me an email, cheers at history.com. I need emails. I want something to read. I need feedback. Feedback makes me grow like a withering plant in the shade. Leave us a voicemail on the History Hotline. I'd really like for you to do that, and I'd use it online. 409-29-BOOZE. That's 409-292-6693. And thanks, everybody, again for listening. I promise I'll keep trying to get better. And if I don't see you at the pub and I don't see you at Oktoberfest, I'll see you right here. And merrily, as always, you have the patience of Job. Thanks for being there for me all these years. You are the measure of my dreams. So, goodbye everybody. And now, it's time for Drunk Uncle Al's Joke of the Week. So, a fella, he's walking down the street in Dublin one day, and he's going into a pub, and right outside the pub is a nun, and she's standing there, and she points a finger at him and says, Before you go into that den of inequity, think of your dear mother and father. And the fellow says, well, me mom and dad are dead. They're dead, gone many years now. They're in heaven, I'm sure. And the nun says, well, then think of the damage you do to your body, your liver, and your brain when you go in there and drink. And the fellow, he's like, well, wait a minute. Have you ever had a drink, he says to the nun, and the nun says, no, I've never had a drink in my life. And the fellow says, well, then how can you say something about it that you don't know anything about? How can you say that it's bad when you've never had it before? He goes, I tell you what I'll do. I'll go in there and I'm going to get myself a pint and I'll get you a drink. What would you like to have to drink? You should try it before you tell anybody they shouldn't do it. And then the nun, the nun says, well, I've never had a drink. What, what should I drink? And the fellow says, well, most of the ladies I know like gin. And she goes, well, I suppose that'll do. I'll have a gin. But get it in a teacup so nobody knows what it is. So I says, all right, 
nods at her. He walks on into the pub. He says to the barman, he says, I'll have a pint of Guinness and I'd like a double gin, but put it in a teacup. And the bartender says, is that fucking nun outside again? I'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>